Do take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning in a flying visit to this section of the Bible. This is Palm Sunday, and uh, on this Sunday we remember the day that Jesus of Nazareth entered Jerusalem riding on a, a donkey's colt as if he were a king coming in peace to his royal capital. The crowds recognized him as he came. They responded accordingly and enthusiastically. We read that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Matthew tells us in his account that the crowds went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that was the beginning of the week. He's being hailed as the Son of David, as the King of Israel, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. By the end of the week, by the end of the week, Pilate dresses him like a mock king of the Jews and says to them, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests responded, We have no king but Caesar. In other words, in this week, Israel goes from having a king to having another king. They replace their true king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, with, a, with one who is a foreigner, one who is a stranger to God. They hail him as the son of David, the king of the Jews. And they end by affirming that Caesar is their king. And then, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. So they're hailing him at the beginning of the week. By the end of the week, they're calling, they're baying for his blood. They're having Caesar as their king. They even acknowledge that Jesus is king, but they mock him. And it raises the question this morning, this Holy Week raises the question this morning, who is the king? Now you say to me, as some of you have been saying, as we've been going through this book of Samuel, we don't have kings here on this side of the Atlantic. We got rid of them. And that was a very good thing, I'm sure, uh, to do that. Uh, but you do understand, you do understand the leader, the commander, the pace setter, the shaper of society, the giver of laws, the former of culture, the declarer of wars, the setter of standards, the maker of destinies, the judge of all. That's what we mean when we say king. People occupy that role even though they don't have that title. They're the politicians, the people who are in power. They're the media, the elites, the education leaders, the thinkers, those who determine the destiny and the movement of society. They, they occupy the position of being in charge here. So the real question when we ask who is the king is who's in charge? Who's in charge? And in the book of Samuel there is only one person in charge ultimately and that is God. God is king. So it doesn't matter whether you have a king or a queen or a president or a prime minister or whatever you call them, ultimately there's only one king and he's the king of creation and he's the Lord of all and that is God himself. And all the other little people, all the other people that occupy office, though they occupy high office and we respect them, as such do so by his permission, with his blessing, but not in place of him. 
Now, I want you to remember that as we turn the clock back from that day, that first Palm Sunday, to the events of these two chapters in 2 Samuel. Because in this day, Israel has two kings. Which means what? It means that they have one king too many. Because they're only supposed to have one king. God's anointed one. David has been anointed by God. He's been accepted by the house of Judah, one of the twelve tribes. Uh, he has reigned for, at this point, five and a half years without a rival in Judah. He has made no move in that five and a half years to enforce his rule on the other eleven tribes. He has patiently built up his kingdom in Judah. Uh, he is not going to initiate conflict. He will not win Israel by battle. He is waiting the time that God has appointed. In other words, David is acting well here. He is acting like a godly man. And then, for the next two and a half years, at the end of his rule in Judah, there's going to be civil war in Israel. And that's the account that we have in chapters 2 and 3. As the house of David and the house of Saul are locked in conflict. The key to understanding the, the chapter, or the chapters, I think, is verse 1 of chapter 3, which makes this clear. There was a long war, we read, between the house of Saul and the house of David. So, this is the issue. The issue is where do people's allegiances lie? Where will the lot ultimately fall? Who is in charge? And the answer, strangely enough, is the name of a man, this man Abner. And the, word, the name Abner and the word power are linked together in this passage so that as you scan your eye through these two chapters, you will see a power broker at work you will see a power move in operation. You'll see power politics all over the place. Those are my three points this morning. I thought they were quite clever. Uh, you, if you didn't, don't, don't, that's fine. You can think what you like, but I thought they weren't bad. So let's look at the power broker, first of all. I'm, very, I'm, I'm writing this book called Humility and How I Obtained It. And <laughs> I, I, I'm still stuck in the first page. But anyway, there, there we go. So let's look first of all then at chapter 2, verses 12 to 32, and see the power broker at work. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army. Somebody asked me what son of Ner, who, who Ner was, and I answered, I thought he was a nerd. Uh, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim, Benjamin and all Israel. Who is Abner? Abner is the commander-in-chief of Saul's army. He is a major player, as we shall see in the drama. It's taken him five and a half years to recover from the defeat of Israel and the death of Saul, but now he's got over it, and he's got over it in a big time. And whereas David has been made king all over the house of Judah, Abner now single-handedly has the power to make Ishbosheth, who is one of Saul's sons, king over all Israel. He does it by the strength of his own personality and influence. And he demonstrates that he is the real power behind the throne now that Saul is dead. 
What we have in the, this little section is a contrast between two men, between Abner on the one hand who believes in fake strength, fake strength that is believes in human strength and ingenuity and in believing in yourself and believing that you can achieve what you want to achieve if you have the power and the influence to do it. Abner believes in fake strength. And then you have David who believes in true strength. That's the, one of the names of God. God is true strength. David believes in true strength because he believes God's promise and he's willing to wait until God keeps his promise. And people in this room, you're either trusting in fake strength or true strength. You're either trusting in the promise of God and waiting for that promise to come true or you're taking matters into your own hands as Abner does in this story. Well, what does Abner do? He, he is afraid that he will lose importance and influence if David takes over all of Israel. That's understandable. He's been the commander-in-chief to a king. And uh, he does have influence over 11 of the 12 tribes. That makes you feel as if numbers at least are on your side. And it's this man, Abner, who is the aggressor from the start. The geography tells us that. He came from the east, from the other side of the Jordan. He crosses the river. He comes within miles of Jerusalem, which is going to be the future capital of, of uh, Judah. And he's well into Judah's own territory. And it's there that this incident, the first incident recorded here, takes place. It's not a random incident. It just doesn't happen by accident. It isn't just that a gun goes off and an archduke somewhere is killed somewhere in the middle of Europe that sparks off a war. This, this is a deliberate act of precipitating a war with Judah. And so when Abner and his men come, Abner proposes that there be a kind of trial by combat. He says, you know, we, we don't really need to go into a total war right now. We, what we can do is we can put forward 12 men each and put them in and we'll have a war game. They can fight each other and we'll see who wins and those who win can go home feeling, well, we fought and uh, there was a resolution and there's winners and losers and, and that would be a good thing to do. So these 12 men get locked in combat together. When I was telling the children this story earlier on, in the first service downstairs, the little boys were really quite excited at this part. These, these 24 men get fighting each other. And so fierce is their fight that all 24 of them are lying dead on the ground. It's a, it's a bloody picture of devastation as these 24 men representing Israel on the one hand and Judah on the other find themselves lying dead on the ground. It's a warning from God. It's God saying to all Israel, Civil war among the people of God is not a good thing. Civil war among brothers is a very bad thing. It can only get worse. Things are going to deteriorate. It is a terrible thing. And God does not, God does not take sides. God does not take sides. Well, it precipitates a running battle. This incident precipitates a, a running battle in which eventually the people of Judah win the battle, losing only 19 men as opposed to 360 of the other side. And at the end of the chapter, we find this man Abner escaping, running away from the battle, and he's being pursued by this triathlete called, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, that, there it is there, Job's brother. Uh, um, where is his name? It's, it was there when I read it earlier on in the story, and I can't remember what, what it is. Um, I ha well, Asahel, that's the, that's the thank you. We're going to build this kind of rapport up here. Will you start talking back to me? Because 
This would be good. There are other churches in town that do this. We could practice being like them. Asahel, that's the name of the guy. He's a triathlete. He is, here is Abner in his Mercedes S-Class escaping the battle with his foot down and it going full throttle. And here is Asahel. He's jogging up behind and he's keeping in touch up with the car as it's going along, the chariot, whatever it was he was driving, as it's going along. And Abner says to him over and over again, go back, you know, don't waste your time, you're getting tired yet, is that you Abner, is it really you, kind of thing? Don't, don't be chasing me here, go, ho go home, or there's some other guys here you can get that are easy, easier to catch than me, and, but this guy, Asahel, he keeps going. And I think Abner doesn't want to hurt this guy because he knows if he kills his brother of the commander of the armies of David, that's going to cause ill feeling in the future. And in fact, that's what it's going to do. So I don't know whether Abner means to kill him or not. He prods him with the back of his spear, but this guy's going so fast, he runs right into the spear and the spear comes out the other side. It's gruesome. And he dies. And uh, they negotiate a settlement but war begins, and there's a long war. That's what we come, come on in chapter 3, verse 1. A long war begins. Now, my question is, why does Abner do all this? Why does he precipitate this war? Abner, we know, knew that David was the Lord's anointed. We know that because he says so. He says so in chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. He says, the Lord has sworn to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel. He knows this. The only time he actually quotes from this promise of God is when it suits his own purposes, as we shall see. But he knows this. So what, what is it that makes someone who knows better do something that is clearly against the mind, the revealed mind and will of God? To follow David was to follow the Lord. He knew that, but he doesn't do that. And instead, what he's determined to do is to set up this man, uh, Ishbosheth as a kind of anti-David, that is, anti-Christ, anti-Messiah, in defiance of God and in defiance of God's purpose. And what he's doing by doing that, do you see, is he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He knows what is true, but he's keeping the truth down. He will not let the truth inform his decision. He is opting for this new thing that he is establishing by his own might and by his own influence and by his own personality and strength. He is going for this rather than the other. Why? He's doing so because it suits him. He has made himself the center of the world. He knows the truth. He can quote the truth. He can commend the truth. He can speak the truth. But he does not embrace it. He does not love it. He does not submit to it because he does not believe it. And you know, that's true of many people. It's true of everybody, in a sense. Everybody in the world is like this. The book of Romans tells us that there is a knowledge of God, a racial memory of God's law, a racial memory of the time when there was only one God who was worshipped by all of humanity in the very beginning of the story. That racial memory is built into the conscience of every man, woman, and child. And what the book of Romans says is we hold that knowledge down. We suppress that knowledge. We don't want that knowledge to interfere with the way we look at the world and the decisions we make in our lives. We hold down the knowledge of God. And that's bad enough for everyone in general, but this man, 
This man, Abner, you know, he's an Israelite. He has the knowledge of God, revealed knowledge of God. Not just that innate knowledge, but this revealed knowledge of God. He has the law of Moses. He has, he has the ministry of Samuel to look back to in, and God's intervention through Moses and so on. All of that is part of his history. He knows this stuff. And he knows, for example, the great prophecy in, in Genesis that it is going to be from the house of Judah that, that the king will ultimately come. He knows all of that. And yet, in spite of knowing that, for his own purposes, for his own purposes, he seeks to establish an anti-Messiah within Israel. So there's a power broker at work. He has the power to do that. Secondly, we see a power move taking place. This is chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. The civil war, announced in verse 1, gets stronger. And the long war between the two houses of Saul and David uh, persists, and David grows stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now when you read that, what you're meant to read into it is this. God's purpose is unfolding. God has said that David will be ultimately king over all of Israel. It's been announced by Samuel himself, by Jonathan, Saul's son, by Abigail, who became David's wife, and even by Saul himself. God's purpose was to give all Israel to David. And although there's been this long delay of many, many, many years, decades now, Although there's been this long delay, the purpose of God still remains. Now the question is then, how is David going to win the north? Here he is in the southern kingdom of Judah. How is he going to win the north and get out of this civil war situation? He knows that war is not good for unity. He knows that civil war is the worst kind of war. Brother pitted against brother. He knows it's a terrible thing. So how is it going to be resolved? Is it going to be David? Is it going to be Ishbosheth? How is it going to work out? The answer is the key person here is Abner again. He has the power. You can see that, I think, in verse 6. This is what's on Abner's mind. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. What's he doing? He's consolidating his personal power base. He does it in a special way because we're told that he takes one of Saul's concubines for himself. At least that's the charge that Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, makes against Abner. Now, why would he do that? Well, he does that not out of romance, you understand. He does that as a political move. If you, in the ancient world, if you, took, if you invaded a territory and you defeated a king, you would take the wives and the concubines of that king and you would add them to your harem is a sign that you basically had it over this man. You had power over this man you defeated. You had destroyed all his power right from the battlefield to the bedroom. You had power over this man. And that's what's going on in the story here. Saul's death had created a vacuum, a power vacuum. And I think here we have Abner making a bit of a power move here. He's establishing himself, consolidating his power base in Israel. And he is directly being defiant uh, of Ishbosheth, who's a rather lame puppet king in the north. And Ishbosheth, so the story goes on, confronts him with this. What are you doing? He asks him. Are you, trying, are you trying to edge your way in here? Are you trying to get power away from me? 
And this man, Abner, does not like to be questioned. We discover something about Abner in the story here. He does not like to be questioned or challenged. And it's the dispute about the concubine that swings it. Whether, by the way, it's true or not that he's done this, whether it's only a charge or he's actually done it, is irrelevant. It is the dispute about it that triggers a change of mind in this man, Abner. And from being the one who's set up Ishbosheth is king of Israel. He now says to Ishbosheth, I'm going to give all Israel, all 11 tribes, I'm going to give them to David. I'm going to give them all to David. It's an amazing statement. You can see this in verses 9 and 10. Abner says this God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel, over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He swaps positions, places, and he says, I have the power, I have the influence, I can deliver all Israel to David. Now you mustn't for one minute think that this is a principle or point of principle in Abner's decision. He's, asked, he's responding where we read in the story out of spite and in his own interests. Two things signal that. The, the, the reaction of Ishbosheth challenging him on the concubine stuff, but also what we're told right at the very beginning that David is getting stronger and stronger and Saul's house is getting weaker and weaker. This man, Abner, is a military man. He knows the way the wind's blowing. He's making himself stronger in the house of Saul so that he can make a decision there that will influence what his long-term prospects are when eventually he gives all this power over to David. You know, this man Abner is only interested in his, in his own interests. And there's a little bit of Abner in every one of us. Donald Gray Barnhouse told the story of Willie. Willie was a little boy who crawled over the ice and rescued a playmate of his who had fallen through into the pool below. People who were watching were full of praise and admiration for his bravery and apparent selflessness. When a very well-dressed lady asked him why he was brave enough to risk his life for his friend, Willie's reply was this, I had to, ma'am. He was wearing my skates. <laughs> well, Adner, Adner has this approach. He's wanting to give the kingdom to David, but it's not because he wants to do David a favor. He wants to do Abner a favor. He wants to have some place in the future with David. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Here is, here is the picture of this man who's centered upon himself, and ultimately, he brings devastation upon himself. It reminds me of the story of a man in the New Testament called Simon, who had watched as the apostles had come into his neighborhood and had seen so many people converted. He was so well known, this man, that his conversion to Christianity was the biggest conversion story emerging from a whole preaching tour that the apostles had been involved with. Simon the magician. That was quite a background and quite a reputation. He was converted. He believed. He was baptized. He joined the church. And when the apostles come to visit and they do their signs and wonders, he's the one who comes to them and he says, Now, I really like what you're doing. You guys have really got power, real power at your fingertips. I would like power at my fingertips. And I'm prepared to pay good money to get what you've got. Please give me what you've got and I'll give you the money. 
And you remember the apostles responded to Simon by saying this, you've got neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Abner looks as if he's giving the kingdom to David, that he's submitting to David as the rightful king. And over the history of the church, there have been kings and politicians and presidents and celebrities and military men and ordinary people who have tied their wagon, as it were, to the church as a way of furthering their own agenda or their own career. Throughout history, there have been those who have preached the, have preached the cross of Jesus. And they've done it not out of selflessness, but out of self-interest. Paul refers to these people in Philippians. They preach Christ but they do so out of envy and strife, out of their own interest, trying to put themselves forward instead of glorifying Jesus for who He is. They preach Christ for the wrong reason. They preach Christ, says Paul, and I rejoice in that because if Christ is preached, it doesn't really matter what the preacher's like so long as Christ is preached. But they preach Christ from the wrong motives. What about Christian workers? How many have gone into Christian work for a whole variety of reasons. Some because they think it's an easy job and they can hide their laziness. Others go into it because they see it as a way of becoming important it, it, when they're not important in any other walk of life. There are all kinds of motivations that drive people into Christian work and service. They want recognition. They want the applause. They want the kudos of it all. I think of a little boy who was taken once to great railway station because his aunt was coming back from the mission field and he was there in the crowd as the train came puffing into the railway station and there she was at the window of the train with the window down and there were the crowds of people, hundreds of them on the, on the railway uh, station there singing hymns and clapping and welcoming her and this little boy thought to himself, wouldn't it be a great thing to be a returned missionary? to get this kind of reception. Just for a moment, the little thought went through my mind. Uh, and, and, and then it dawned on me, it dawned on me that to get there, of course, you had to go. And you had to learn Spanish, and you had to go to Argentina, and go up to the Pampas, and stay there for five years, as she had done, before she could come home to the welcome. And there's always in our hearts a little bit of Abner, who wants something of the praise of men, even in doing the right thing. Abner was going to do the right thing, but he was going to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, the last rest of chapter 3, from verse 12 to the end, we see power politics at work. Because Abner now makes his move. He makes an offer to David. You can see that in verse 12. He comes to David and he says to David this. Listen to the arrogance of this man. To whom does the land belong? Answer, to me. He's saying to David, I have it in my hands to give you the crown of all Israel. Apparently, David believed him. David believed him. The man said to David, you know, if you make a covenant with me, if you make a deal with me, we shake hands on it and we make a firm obliga obligatory covenant between us, then it will all be yours. I will bring over all Israel to you, he says in verse 12. David goes for it. Why does he go for it? Well, David wants all Israel to be united without war. He wants the war to end. He doesn't want this brother against brother. But in the process of getting it, David goes a step further. He goes beyond the opportunity God has given him 
See, God has done this. God's not mentioned, but God has changed Abner's heart. Not that he's converted, but he's changed his heart so that he's willing to offer David the kingdom. David goes a step further. Now he's thinking more as a politician than as a believer. Now he's thinking, what would help to heal the rift between the house of David and the house of Saul? Long years before, Saul had taken away his daughter who'd been married to David and given her to another man. So David says to Abner, okay, we can have this deal, but part of the deal is that I have to get Saul's daughter, Michael, back. And there's a little coincidental bit that's put into the text there that we're meant to notice as we read the story, and the little bit incidental bit tells us this. David had, by this time, six wives. She was going to be, she'd been wife minus one, now she's going to be wife number seven in the list of wives. And for, don't think for one minute there's anything, even in scintilla of romance in what David is doing, it is all a political move because he thinks this will heal the breach between the house of Saul and the house of David. Actually, as you read the rest of the story in Samuel, you discover it's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to mean that there's going to be a, an undercurrent of resentment that is going to last. It's going to last well beyond Solomon's time. It's going to last, and eventually it's going to split Israel in two. Eleven to the north, one to the south. The Jews are going to be isolated from the rest of Israel, and the rest of Israel is going to disappear. It's a tragic moment in David's life. He acts selfishly. How do I know that's the way to interpret it? The, way, the reason I know it's that, that's the way to interpret it is that if you read the story here in chapter 3, you'll find the emphasis of the story is on the man she had married who's walking down the road with tears pouring out of his eyes, heart broken to lose the wife he loved while David just adds her to the list for political reasons. It's not a good story. It's not a good story. Well, Abner signs a deal and he leaves David and he makes his way back. And while he's making his way back, Joab, who's the commander of David's troops, notices Abner leaving Hebron and he comes into David's court and he says to David, was that Abner I just saw here? You know that Abner killed my brother, Asahel, that guy, Asahel. You know he did that. And you let him go. You had him in your hands. He was there. You could have got him. And David sends a message to Abner and says, you better come back to Hebron. Why? Because Hebron was one of the cities of refuge. Abner would be safe in Hebron, but he wasn't going to be safe with Job in the mood Job was in, Joab was in. Joab goes, finds him at the gate of Hebron, kills him, and creates further warfare for several more years. You don't want people like Joab on your side. Joab is the commander-in-chief of David's army. And what he does is, in his thirst for revenge, he actually makes things worse. 
You know, there are people you know like that, aren't there? They, there are people who just make things worse. You give them a bit of authority, you give them a bit, a bit of power, and they say things or they do things, and they make things worse. Joab was one of those people. His action spoils any chance of a peaceful solution between the north and the south. And what is tragic is that David does not deal with him. And he's going to rue the day that he doesn't deal with him because he's going to see a day in which Joab is going to be like a, like a sting that comes back to bite him. Now, it's, it's, a, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of a convoluted story, isn't it? You're thinking to yourself, All right, what's he doing with this this morning? Where's he going with this? I have to say to you, last night I wondered where I was going with this too. I thought, what possible sense can we make out of this? And it seems to me, oh, I had this great revelation of an answer. It seems to me that the, the answer actually is in words that are repeated five times in the last few verses of chapter 3, which is at the end of this section. In verse 32, 33, 36, 37, and 39, David is called the king five times. It's almost as if the narrator in telling the story is underlining the fact David's the one who's going to be king. David is the king of the Jews. David is going to be king of Israel. He's the king. 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 Remember that. In other words, here we are reading this story and everything you read in the story is a mess. 24 guys come to have a wrestling match and they kill each other. Amna fights, you know, uses his spear to try and stop a guy from chasing him and the guy runs right into it and gets killed. And that, that's going to lead to Abner being killed by this guy's brother. It's, it's a mess. Michael gets taken away from the man she loves and the home she loves and she's added to the king's harem. It's not a good story. But underlying it all, do you see what we're being told? Underlying all these mistakes, all these errors, all these foolishness by men, underlying it all, God's purpose of the kingdom is continuing. God is going to put his, holy, his king on Zion, his holy hill. He's going to do it. He's going to do it even using the weaknesses and the messiness of life and the weaknesses of men. He's going to do this. Nothing is going to stop God because what God has to work with are people like you and me. In all of our weaknesses, in all of our faults and failures and sins, these, this is what God has to work with in the world. And that's what he chooses to work with. Men and women like you and me. Men and women who are like David. I mean, you just think of what we have looked at this morning. Here's the kingdom of God at work, resisted by force of arms, threatened by those who want it for the wrong reasons, compromised by those like Joab who are concerned only about themselves and their own revenge, endangered by the fact that David doesn't actually discipline Joab for what he has done. There are nefarious goings-on. There's murder, accidental killing, intrigue, war games, greed, dysfunctional people, power plays. It just sounds like daytime television. It sounds like life, doesn't it? And yet, everything that happens to David has something to do with Jesus. Because everything that happens to David is part of this bigger plot line in the Bible that is going to take us to the Savior who has been promised. So I know that some of you here, perhaps, are, you're skeptical of Christianity. You, you, you're skeptical of the church. You come here with a bit, you know, with... Uh, and you, you listen to me and you look around at these people who have been singing their songs and confessing their faith and you wonder to yourself what on earth we're doing You've heard things like Christians believe that they should love their neighbor and love their enemy and bless those who curse them and so on. 
And yet you know there's been this 2,000 years of history. You know this. And you know in that 2,000 years of history, Christianity has brought education and encouraged human flourishing and it's built hospitals and it's cared for orphans and it's rescued addicts and it's rehabilitated criminals and it's contributed to the arts and sciences. But you know also that people in the church have acted like Joab or like Abner. You know that in the church there have been those who have tried to build a, ki build a kingdom of their own out of self-interest, who prompted fights, church fights, and even wars, great wars, that are religious wars among Christians. Many of those wars drove people to cross the Atlantic and come to this continent to escape the violence. And we know it was never meant to be like that. It was never meant to be like that. And yet the reality is that there are still people who use their influence, like Abner did, as a tool to build a reputation, or to exercise some influence over Christ's church, or who, like Joab, are picking for a fight wherever they go among the people of God. James, uh, the Apostle James, talks about this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? See, he's writing to churches. He says, still happens. We may not be burning each other uh, or, or whatever, but, but we can do this. We can argue and fight. It is that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That goes on, doesn't it, in the church of Jesus Christ? We know that we know the house of Judah were right. We know they were in the right David was their rightful king. It's possible for a minority within the church to be right with the rest wrong as it was in ancient Israel. But that is still no reason to fight because Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We don't use the tools of the world to build the kingdom. So it's a mess. The civil war is a mess. The church against the church. The people of God against the people of God. And yet, in the midst of all of this messiness, God is building a kingdom. And all the messiness of church history in our lives is building the kingdom of God. And unlikely though it seems, and remote though the day may appear to be from this perspective, there is a day coming when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. Now can we be sure? We can be sure because after the cheers of that first Palm Sunday and after the jeers as they stood around that man stripped naked and clothed to look like a mock king and then later nailed naked on a cross in shame. But that was followed by the resurrection and with the resurrection, God put the whole world on notice that one day our prince will come. And for some it will be like a fairy tale ending. And for others, it will spell disaster to those who have not submitted the knee, bowed the knee to him as their rightful Lord. 
and King. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that one day the Prince will come in all his splendor. He whom you raised from the dead and have exalted to the highest place. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray, Lord, in the meantime, as we deal with the messiness of our lives, the messiness of the church in the world, the messiness of people's unbelief, self-centeredness, even civil war among God's people, that, Lord, you would be helped, pleased to show us how the kingdom of God advances in spite of what we are. That there is not only the messy humanity of the church, but there is the wonderful divinity of the church because the spirit of glory and of God rests among us. And in spite of all that we are, you, because of all that he is, are building the church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We thank you as we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.